Would you take the word of God with me and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts and uh, chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Uh, Paul stands uh, before a group of people, and the group of people is quite impressive. At that time, based on Acts chapter 25, verse 23, the audience was King Agrippa and his sister Bernice, the chief captains, those were Roman uh, captains who were in charge of about a thousand soldiers each. They're all gathered there. The Bible also mentions the principal men of the city, those in authority. Festus was there as well. So there's a great crowd that's uh, gathered there. And um, we noted of uh, the background leading up to Acts chapter 26 that um, Paul is been unfairly treated. He's been left in prison for two years because of the politics of the land with Festus and Felix. You find them knowing the law of Rome, but also struggling with trying to please the Jews and what they want. And so therefore, Paul is in a precarious situation. He appealed to Caesar and Festus or Felix doesn't really know how to deal with that because You can only send a man to Caesar that's appealed to Caesar if there is a list of crimes against him. And obviously there was no crimes. There was no proof. There were no witnesses. And so in the midst of all that, we note, as I've tried to emphasize over the last uh, few studies, that uh, we don't see Paul in his capacity as a missionary or a church planter or a preacher, but we see him in his capacity as a Christian. That he is being dealt with unfairly because he is a Christian. Because of what he says. Because he identifies with Jesus Christ. Because he's been preaching about the resurrection. And he's granted an opportunity. And last week I mentioned the title And then we began to study our text, and then I focused in on how Paul counted himself. He counted himself most happy in those circumstances. And uh, I wonder, when we go through difficult times, how we count ourselves. Do we count ourselves most happy? And as I illustrated, I would like to remind Paul of what he just went through, but he knew what he was going through. But it is interesting to know that whatever he went through was not cause for him to lose his joy and in his mind and in his estimation that he was grateful for that moment. Grateful for that moment. We're going to continue, since I didn't finish last week's message, we're going to continue with the message this week. So Acts chapter 26, verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read verse 1 through verse 12? Acts 26, verse 1. The Bible says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereon I am accused of the Jews especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from 
beginning if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope say, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which things I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon I went to Damascus with authority, and commission from the chief priests. Then he's going to mention about the Lord's intervention on his way to Damascus. But I want to pause there, and I want to bring back your attention to verse 6. Paul says, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. I would like to bring your attention here. Paul is judged for the hope of the promise. I want you to pause here just a moment. He is not being judged for his crimes. He's not being judged because he's done something wrong. He is judged... Because of Jesus Christ. And I want us to think here for just a moment. The idea of the word judge means to, to be distinguished, to decide for somebody, to try, to condemn, to punish, to call someone in question. And Paul is called into question. He is judged. He is condemned. Not because of anything that he has done, but because of who and what he identifies with. So the question for us this morning is, although the message is judged for the promise of the hope, uh, for the hope of the promise, I want to begin by asking this question, are we willing to be judged for the hope of the promise? Are we willing to be called into question, to be condemned for the hope of the promise? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, help us to be willing to be judged although it is an unpleasant thought, certainly, to think about. But may, as Paul, we be willing to be judged for the hope of the promise. And if we are willing to do so, to know what will accompany our lives with certainty, if we are willing to do so. And we ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So in our text here, Paul, as he has an opportunity to speak and to give an answer, he states really clearly why he is standing there before King Agrippa. And we've seen this theme over the last several chapters. That Paul has not done anything wrong with respect to the law. He hasn't done anything wrong with respect to any crimes that he has committed. And really, he, even if it doesn't pertain to the Roman law, with respect to the Jewish law, he has also done nothing wrong. And yet he is being judged here and standing before King Agrippa has an opportunity to give an answer. But it is interesting here that he is willing to be condemned. He is willing to be judged 
on the basis of the hope of the promise. I mentioned something this morning in our prayer meeting when Jesus Christ uh, prayed for the disciples and prayed for all those, by the way, by implication, who one day would believe, who would remain in this world. His prayer was quite specific. And if you hold your place there, turn with me to John chapter 17. In the Gospel of John and chapter uh, 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, and notice in John 17, if we go down, the, the majority of the chapter is Jesus' prayer, but I want to bring your attention to what he says in the midst of this prayer with regards to his disciples and all who later would believe. He says this in verse 13. John 17, 13, And now come I to thee. Jesus hasn't been betrayed yet. He hasn't uh, died on the cross, hasn't been resurrected, but he says, I come to thee. He's going to come to the Father. He's going to ascend to the Father. And this prayer is in anticipation of that. That he is not going to be physically and presently with the disciples. And he says in verse 13, And these things I speak in the world. He's praying this prayer while he's in the world. That they, specifically the disciples and all who would believe after them, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So think about it. the prayer of Jesus Christ is for the disciples, all those who would be in the world who would believe subsequently to the disciples, that they would have the joy of the Lord fulfilled in themselves. That's Jesus' prayer, by the way, for us today. And he says this after that, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath loved them. No, that's not what it says. The world hath, what's the word? Hated them. Now I want you to think about those three things that Jesus says. That my joy might be fulfilled in them, and I've given them thy word, and the world hates them. You see the process of thought here? God intends for us to His joy to be fulfilled in us. And He has given us His Word as a tool to see that happen in our lives. But then also we have to recognize that we also contend in our lives. With what? With the world. And how the world hates us. And by the way, the reason that is given here, it's in connection to the Word. Our identity with Jesus Christ and our identity with the Word of Jesus Christ will cause the world to hate. Notice, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He continues and he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world. And I think sometimes that that is maybe our desire. Uh, and we may desire for God to take us out of the world. But sometimes if we're not careful, we may even pray and ask, well, God... Would you take us out of this situation? Or God, maybe would you cause the world to stop hating the Christian? But is that a, is that a necessary prayer? Is that even a needed prayer? Is that a prayer where there is a, an answer to... 
And we, I contend with you that when we come to the Gospel of John, as Jesus has been telling His disciples in John 13, 14, 15, 16, leading up to chapter 17, He says, uh, the world's going to hate you. The world loves its own, but you're not of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. And so now He's praying for them. And notice, He's not praying. Now, this is Jesus thinking about us today. Jesus' prayer is not that He might take us out of the world. What is his prayer for us? What is his desire for us? But that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. And here the evil, the indication of the evil is the idea is the, the evil one and the one who rules the world and the world as a result who hates us and he's there to keep us. That's the desire of the Lord to keep us from the evil. Notice verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. And here's what he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctify means to, to set apart, to, to make holy. In the Old Testament, the idea was that when a, a, a plate or a candlestick, whatever it was, was sanctified to the Lord, that object was deemed holy and was placed in the tabernacle and it was called a something that was holy. Why? Because it was sanctified. It was set apart. And notice the Bible says that we are sanctified through the Word of God. The same Word that causes the world to hate us. And yet, in the midst of that, we can have the joy of the Lord fulfilled in us. Now go back to verse 13 of John 17. Lest we had noticed this already, he says that they might have, notice, my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have circled in my Bible the word my joy. Here in this verse, he is not talking about my joy, my joy. He's not saying, Father, I am praying that they might have their joy fulfilled in themselves. That's not what he says. He says, my prayer is that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What does the Bible tell us? It is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. It's not our joy that's our strength. It's His joy that is our strength. And His joy can be fulfilled in us. Now, Jesus Christ said that and prayed that for His disciples. He instructed them in that way. And He prayed for them in that way. Not that they might be removed from difficulty. Not that they might be removed from hatred. But that they might be sanctified, preserved, and be joyful in the midst of a world that hates them and that rejects them. So let's go back to Acts chapter 26. Paul is standing before King Agrippa. He is standing before Festus and the chief captains and the principal men of the city. And he stands there uh, counting himself happy to be able to give an answer and willing to stand and to be judged, not because of anything that he has done wrong, but to be judged for the hope of the promise. In other words, in his mind, he is willing to go through suffering 
because of who and the set of promises that he identifies with. What's the alternative, you ask? Well, the alternative would be this, to forsake the promises. And so that there might be no opposition. That's right. He is judged for the hope of that. That's why he is standing here. That is why the crowd hates him. That's why the Jews went about to kill him. Uh, that's why they decided, they tried him, they condemned him, they wanted to punish him, they called him into question. And we have to understand as Christians that by virtue of our profession, our identity with Jesus Christ, and our identity with His Word, thereby His promises, that we also have to be willing, along with those promises, to be judged of the world. To be condemned of the world. To be called into question and we should not think it a strange thing when we are called into question. But as Paul, we should count it all joy. Turn with me, if you, with that thought, if you turn with me to the book of James. The book of James in chapter 1. James chapter 1 and notice verse 1. By the way, uh, believes to be the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. James was. And remember the persecution arose. The believers were, were scattered from Jerusalem. And this letter was written to encourage those who had fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. This is a pastor's heart. Notice what he says in James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. And let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and, and tossed. For let no man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He's talking here to believers and he says, Look, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. And then immediately he appeals and says, Look, you have help with the Lord. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. God wants to give you in that moment of trial and difficulty. There are precious promises for you. Don't be ashamed to identify with those promises. Count it all joy. How can it be counted joy Again, the joy, I think, the emphasis in our text here when Paul says, I think myself happy to be able to answer. Notice what happens in the mind of Paul. He counts himself happy. Why? Because to him, the hope of the promise that he is being judged by is of much greater value to him than peace and safety. Isn't it? The hope of the promise of God is of much greater value to him 
when it is accompanied by suffering than to not identify with the hope of the promise and therefore not to suffer as a result. In our text we see three things that Paul, as Paul expresses himself. He mentions first of all, and this by the way gives weight to his standing because in verse 3 through 5 he describes himself as being part of the Pharisaical sect. He says in verse 3, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. He knows that by the way King Agrippa was familiar with the uh, with the Jewish customs. We, we know that this was true for all the leaders in Judea and uh, in Caesarea and that region. Uh, even from the very beginning, you remember, uh, Herod had inquired. Uh, he had counseled people who would often counsel him uh, to know, well, what is the Jewish tradition concerning the Messiah? And so he had people that would come in and counsel him and say, well, here is the place is going to happen. Here is the time it's going to happen. And here is where it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And so he had those counsels. So he would be familiar with those things. Now the subject here is going to be the idea of a resurrection. And Paul is telling Agrippa, you're actually familiar with the idea of a resurrection. It's something that you find in the Old Testament. And so he says in verse 4, My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my known nation of Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So notice here, uh, Paul refers to himself as a, as a Pharisee, and he's really referring back to the fact that he is familiar with the Old Testament. He is familiar with, the, the we could say, the, the promises of God that perhaps people have counseled King Agrippa about concerning a Messiah. The, the Romans knew that the Jews believed that a Messiah was coming. They knew that there was this anticipation. And Paul refers to himself as a Pharisee saying that, look, I, I've, I've known those things. I'm familiar with those things. I grew up with those things. I, I know the first five books of uh, uh, the, the Old Testament. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. We think about uh, all of the pedigree of Paul. Uh, he was the, the top of the top. This man who, by the way, those who were part of the group uh, were those who were chief in opposing Jesus Christ, those who were chief in op opposing the Apostle Paul. And so here now, he used to stand on the other side, but now he is on the, not the persecutor side, but he is on the persecuted side. And by the way, there's a great standing with that. Why? Because if you know both sides, why would you choose the one that is the most difficult? You see, that has quite a weight in the courtroom as he stands before King Agrippa. And Agrippa says, well, why are you, why are you holding on to this, the promises and to the resurrection and to these ideas? And Paul basically tells him, I was on the other side. I was the one who used to deny Jesus Christ. I, I would blaspheme his name. He says really later in our text that he persecuted the church. Notice verse 9. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He goes on to say, verse 10, which thing I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints did shut up in, that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange 
cities. <coughs> he gave his voice against them. He caused them to blaspheme. That means he would force them. Try to force them to deny Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, what was their claim? That Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And so he would try to get them to say, no, he is not the Messiah. And so he stands on the other side here. And he has chosen rather, as Moses made the choice, he has chosen rather to suffer with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. That's a choice that he's made. And as he stands here in the courtroom before King Agrippa, what a testimony would that stand and be before a king who would have to judge the character of Paul? Why would any man in his right mind choose such a life? Even later, interesting to note, when Paul speaks later in the chapter, Festus says to Paul, Thou art mad. Yeah. <laughs> You've lost your mind. Uh, why has he lost his mind? Well, he's lost his mind in the sense that you used to be on the other side and you actually deliberately, deliberately chose, I know, chose to identify with Christ and the promises, but also he deliberately chose Suffering. Did he not? We could go back to Acts chapter 9. When God asked Ananias to go to Paul and to tell him that I want you to be a light unto the Gentiles and I want you to tell Paul that he is going to suffer many things in my name. So when Paul began to preach the gospel in Damascus and then went to Jerusalem as he tried to join himself to the disciples, we understand that Paul's choice was not just Christ and the hope of the promise, but was accompanied as well with suffering. He made a deliberate choice. Now I don't know if uh, many of us, I didn't think of that when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as an eight-year-old uh, young man, it was not immediately afterwards and really not soon afterward that my understanding was or that somebody came to me and says, hey, just I want you to know that if you identify with Jesus Christ, that means that there, there is the potential of suffering and are you willing to go and, and to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? Nobody came to me and told me that. And by the way, that's not really how we present it when somebody comes and we give them the gospel and say, all right, Jesus Christ died for your sins and you can have eternal life in Him. Do you believe on Him? And then immediately after they get saved, I just want you to know there's going to be suffering if you identify with Jesus Christ. Be ready for them. We typically don't say that. But that's the way it was for Paul. The calling on the life of Paul was immediately met with suffering and Paul chose, chose rather to suffer with the people of God than to forsake the hope of the promise and to forsake his identity with Jesus Christ. As we see in our text, he talks about the hope of the promise. Uh, why does he attach so great weight to the hope of the promise? Uh, I'm going to really try to move quickly here through the scriptures, but evidently, as we look at our text, you know, notice with me in verse 6, he says, And now I stand and am judged, for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes 
instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. They're, by the way, they're still expecting, at that time he said, they're expecting for Messiah to come. They're still hoping in that promise. In other words, there's no disagreement in the promise. The disagreement is on whether the promise has come or not. And Paul says it has come, and they say it has not come. For which hope, say King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Notice, it is for this hope that I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Do you see what he says to King Agrippa, who is familiar with the customs and the teaching of the Jews? Is it anything strange, King Agrippa, that I'm talking and preaching about the resurrection? What he is saying is that the hope of the promise, the direction that Paul is going is that he is referring specifically to the hope of the resurrection. That is the component of the promise that he is speaking about. By the way, the hope of the promise is very clearly laid out in the Word of God. And I could spend quite a bit of time, but if you don't mind racing with me through the Bible for just a few moments here to show you the hope of the promise that He is so attached to that He is willing to suffer. Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, as man sinned in the garden, sinned against God, Immediately when God pronounced the curse upon man, in the midst of that He subjected uh, humanity, but He did so in hope. Romans chapter 8 tells us, Romans 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Notice, that is a promise, isn't it? This is what's going to happen. Notice it's not in the present it has happened, but this is what is going to happen. This is what is to be expected. And by the way, this is what God has announced. This word didn't come from Adam. It didn't come from Eve. It came from God Himself. Here is the promise of God. And when Paul refers to the promise in Acts chapter 26, he says, I'm being judged for the hope of the promise of God. It's God's promise. Later, as we move in Genesis chapter 12, he goes on to say in Genesis chapter 12, if we just go to verse 3, he says, And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And we know that part of uh, the promise that was made to Abraham was the promise of a seed. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5, uh, by the way, they both... Uh, Abraham and Sarah got to the place where they were both unable uh, to bring about a conception, but God waited for the time when they were unable so that He could show Himself able and accomplish His promise. Genesis 15 verse 5 says, And He brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And He said unto him, So shall thy seed B. Turn with me to chapter 21. In chapter 21 of the book of Genesis, and verse 12, the Bible says, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy side because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, interesting, we go to chapter 22, and then God asks for 
Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But he had just said in the previous chapter that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. We go to the New Testament as you, if you hold your place there in Genesis chapter 21 in the book of Romans and uh, chapter 4 he speaks of the promise of the seed that in Isaac shall uh, the seed of Abraham be called in Romans chapter 4 verse 18 the Bible says who against hope talking about Abraham believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be called you see Abraham believed God that even when God had asked him to offer his son Isaac he believed that God could raise him from the dead why because God had told him in Isaac shall thy seed be called Hebrews 11 chapter 8 verse 18 tells us that he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead and so he had confidence in the hope of the promise if you go with me to the book of Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy. Now, by the way, it was in Genesis chapter 15. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, it was in uh, Genesis chapter 15 that Jesus Christ, if you remember, had told Abraham that his descendants would be strangers in a land that was not theirs. And they would be there for 400 years. And after 400 years, that God would bring them out with a mighty hand, with a great substance. And then we come to the book of Exodus. We see that is exactly what God does. God brings them out. By the way, it's all that God did. You go to Exodus chapter 1. God saw them. God remembered His promise. Then in chapter 3 of Exodus, it was God that called Abraham. It was not uh, uh, Moses. It was not Moses that got stirred up and moved and said, I'm going to... No, it was God. He said, I'm going to deliver them, but I want you uh, to do it on my behalf, Moses. It was God that instituted the, the Passover. It's called the Lord's Passover. It's not the Passover of the people. It's the Lord's Passover. It was God that opened the Red Sea. It was God that gave the people manna. And so before they're about to enter into the promised land, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, here is a, a prophecy, if you would. Deuteronomy 18, 15. And the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Now people have said, oh yeah, that's talking about Jeremiah. Or, no, no, that's talking about Jesus Christ. And let me show it to you. Verse 16, According to all that thou hast desired of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet among their brethren, like unto thee, that, that's like, like unto Moses, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass, that whatsoever, uh, whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in my name in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord hath, hath uh, not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. 
Well, guess what? When Jesus Christ came on the scene, he says, oh, I can tear down this temple and in three days I can bring it back up. He was talking about his own body. He announced over and over again that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to be betrayed in the hands of sinners, that he was going to die, and that after three days he would rise again. And guess what? It happened. That is why Jesus Christ must be accepted as the Messiah, because he came just like unto Moses, a prophet, and when he prophesied about his own death and his own resurrection, it happened, and therefore he ought to be received. That's what Deuteronomy 18 tells us. Later, uh, John uh, chapter 6, Jesus confirms this in John chapter 6 and verse 14. Jesus says this, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. What prophet? The prophet that was prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Same thing uh, announced to us in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3 and verse 22. The Bible says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your, of your brethren. That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18. Like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. So the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 is clearly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But let's talk specifically about what is at issue here, and that is the doctrine of the resurrection. And the truth is, from the very beginning, one of the oldest books, the book of Job, speaks of a, an expectation of a resurrection. Job chapter 19, verse 25, Job said this, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and, the, and though after... Uh, um, the, 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 the skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. What is that? That's the doctrine of the resurrection from the, one of the earliest books of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 tells us, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so all the promise, the promise of the hope was a promise that one day there would be a resurrection. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah chapter 61. We could go to so many scriptures in the Old Testament. But let's, let me conclude with this one. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is going to read this portion in Nazareth, in the synagogue. He's going to read from Isaiah 61. But notice what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Lord, uh, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort uh, all that mourn, to appoint unto them uh, that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He goes on. But if you turn with me to Luke 4, Jesus is standing in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's going to read it. It's, it's, he's given the portion of Isaiah 61, and he reads it. And notice here the portion that he reads. Very important. Luke 4, verse 17. Verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's uh, Isaiah 61. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to recover the sight of the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. Now notice, that's not where, the, where Isaiah 61 keeps going. But he stops at to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Back in Isaiah 61 says, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance is not coming till later. He fulfilled that first part. The second part, the part of vengeance, that's coming later. But he noticed he closed the book there. That means that the ministry of the Messiah on earth would be twofold. That the first time that he would come, he would come to proclaim the acceptability of the Lord. Salvation to the ends of the world is available to all men. But when he comes again, he's going to come in vengeance and judgment and wrath. But when he came, he came to accomplish that first part. That is the hope of the promise of God. That Jesus Christ came to fulfill. The Bible speaks of in the Old Testament of the resurrection. And so let me take you to a few books of the Old Testament because some people might contend even today some more liberal Jews say, well, there is no teaching of a resurrection in the Old Testament and I would defer. And I say, no, it does teach that there is a resurrection. Let me show you a few portions. Turn with me to the book of Daniel in chapter 12. I know I'm racing here and I'm talking fast, but I hope it's making sense of coming together. Daniel chapter 12 and Notice verse 2. The Bible says, And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is the doctrine of the resurrection. There is a resurrection coming, even in the book of Isaiah. Turn with me back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 26. Isaiah 26. We're going to have some sore fingers afterwards, but... You can eat lunch and refill your energy. Isaiah 26, notice verse 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. That's the doctrine of the resurrection. We could read Psalm 149, Psalm 16, Psalm, the whole chapter of Psalm 71. And when we come to Acts chapter 2, clearly he emphasizes, quoting back the Old Testament, that the hope of the promise of the resurrection was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is so important that the Apostle Paul, and we covered this just a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that if Christ be not raised from the dead, that our preaching is vain and your faith is also vain. Paul was familiar with the Old Testament. He says to King Agrippa, 
you're familiar with the customs. You're familiar with what the Old Testament teaches concerning the doctrine of the resurrection. And I'm here to tell you that I used to be on the other side. I used to revile those who believed that the resurrection was in Jesus Christ. And I didn't deny the resurrection. I just denied that the resurrection was found in Jesus Christ. And now, when, now that I've been convinced of this, now I stand on the other side and I'm willing, I'm willing to suffer on the other side because of the hope of the resurrection. I'm willing to be hated, to be judged, to be condemned because I so heartily believe this promise and it's so clearly laid out in the Word of God. You cannot deny it. He's going to be so convincing that even at the end of this chapter, he's going to say, Believest thou the... Notice, he doesn't say, Do you believe me? He says, Believest thou the prophets? That's what he says at the end. Then he says, I know thou believest. In other words, what he says is, I know I've convinced you. I know I've, I've given you sufficient proof just that you know, you know exactly what the doctrine of the resurrection is. I just want to conclude by saying, although we could spend so much time, probably two or three hours, to just go through the Old Testament, and I had so many scriptures, I don't know why I wrote all those down, because I knew I wasn't getting to all of them. But we could trace all throughout the Old Testament. I'm saying to you that the faith that you have is not based on nothing. There are many infallible proofs. And with all of the promises of God concerning Jesus Christ and the hope of the resurrection, we have to recognize that and be willing, and not just for that promise, but as Christian for, I guess we could say, all the promises of God. We have a choice to make as pertaining the promises of God. Are we going to be willing to suffer along with those promises because we embrace the promises of God? Or are we going to dismiss the promises because we don't want to suffer? Paul chose Jesus and that meant with it suffering. You cannot separate the two. I'm done. Turn with me to Romans 8 and we're done. I know I already closed my Bible but let me open it back up. Romans 8. Are you a child of God today? I hope you are. That you know that your sins have been forgiven. That you have a home in heaven. There is no hope like that hope. All who claim the name of Jesus Christ shall not be ashamed. Romans chapter 8 tells us verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What comfort to know who we who were sinners, enemies of God, that we are called the children of God. God says, you're my son. You're my daughter. He says, verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Wonderful to think about our, that we are joint heirs with Christ. But then he says this. Do you notice with me the rest of the verse? He doesn't talk about just the fact that we are his children. That's a great comforting promise. That we are heirs together with Christ. There's something else that accompanies that. Verse 17. If so be that we what suffer with him. Now notice he doesn't say, now we may suffer. If we identify with Jesus Christ, we may come and we, we may suffer. No. He says, because we identify with Jesus Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon 
that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, in the flesh, here's the struggle. We want the promises of God, but we may not, we don't necessarily like the fact that there is sometimes suffering that accompanies the promises of God. So if we're not careful, we say, well, I want to take the promises without the suffering. And you just can't do that. You cannot do that. Because the promises are accompanied with suffering. If the world hates you, Jesus said to his disciples, know that it hated me before it hated you. You are not of the world. Therefore, the world hateth you. If you are of the world, the world will love its own. But because you are not of the world, therefore the world hateth you. We want to substitute because in our flesh and our weaknesses, we want to embrace the promises of God, but we often are not willing to go and bear the reproach because of our identity with Jesus Christ. As we see in the New Testament, I'm done, I could go on and on here, but there is joy in our identity in Jesus Christ. Joy, evidently, in the New Testament, very clearly, is not, joy is not found in the absence of trouble or the absence of suffering. Joy is found in the identity with Jesus Christ because we understand that it is not our joy. It's His joy that's fulfilled in us. How can His joy be fulfilled in us in suffering if we're not willing to bear the reproach with Him? 